In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says this, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Luke, when he wrote his first book that he tells, he mentions here, his former account, wrote that book, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, apparently to a man named Theophilus. And as Luke wrote it, he says to Theophilus that I wrote that Gospel account as a record of what Jesus began to do and to teach. He tells Theophilus here that all of the Gospel of Luke, all of the account of Jesus' life, of His death, of His resurrection, was just the beginning. In fact, I think Luke suggests that the ministry of Christ was just beginning when He lived those years, those few years in Palestine, teaching, healing, casting out demons, and performing many other miracles, and ultimately dying for our sins only to rise again the third day. That's kind of hard to imagine that all of that could just be the beginning. I watched recently, and many of you maybe did as well, the Olympics. As I was watching the Olympics, I, I had the opportunity to watch the final of the decathlon. And I love watching the decathlon because I don't think I could do any of the events in it. So I, I don't relate with anyone who's doing it. But I love watching the decathlon because the athletes who do this grueling event over two days, five events each day, and a total of ten uh, very challenging and difficult uh, uh, contests. And it's right, I think, when... Uh, when, when we're told that the person who wins the Olympic decathlon is declared to be the, the, the greatest athlete in the world. Right? Uh, because he's not just good at one thing. He has to be good at ten things. He has to be better okay, collectively at those things than anyone else in the world. And the man who happened to win this year, uh, this, uh, this go-round, the champion was an American. Okay? It's actually, it's a sport that's uh, kind of been dominated by Americans. Uh, and uh, throughout its history. His name is Ashton Eaton. And I was watching as Ashton ran the final, uh, the final race. Okay. And uh, he came across the finish line, and he didn't even win that final race, but he was so far ahead in the standings at that point, it didn't matter. Uh, he would have had to lose by like 30 seconds in order to lose the decathlon. And he, he, was, uh, he, he came across the finish line, and he knew that he had won. And, of course, the celebration began, and I was watching as they interviewed him. In fact, the Americans took one and two in the decathlon, the gold and silver. And they, they interviewed Ashton as, along with the, the, the young man who won uh, the silver. And he said this. And this has really caught my attention when he said this. I, thought this was I, I actually went back to make sure I had it right. <laughs> I went back and I looked it up on YouTube and I found the clip again and I watched it again so I could make sure that I had it right. What he said. This is what he said when they interviewed him about his championship. He said, I feel like my life will be short because I've accomplished all these things so soon. Here's a young man, fresh out of college, just earned the title of the best all-around athlete in the world. That seems like an awful lot. It seems like a great accomplishment. And here, this man, Ashton Eaton, has accomplished a great deal in a very, very brief time. But of course, if we compare that to Jesus Christ, it kind of pales in comparison. It seems absurd to suggest that Jesus' life was just the beginning. Now, that's what Luke seems to imply. 
at the beginning of the book of Acts, that, that all that I wrote about, all that I wrote in my previous book was just an introduction. It was just the, 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 the prologue, if you will. And it's interesting because if you look at the end of the Gospel of John, what does John tell us? He says that there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But that was just the beginning. That's the way Luke says it. All of that was just beginning. That's what Jesus began to do. Both do and teach. As we consider the book of Acts, though, I think what we find is that Jesus' ministry really had only begun with his death and resurrection. Homer Kent, in his book, Jerusalem to Rome, said that the book of Acts describes what Jesus continues to do since his ascension as the Holy Spirit empowered believers to carry on the purpose of Christ. That's what this book is about. What Jesus did in his life on the earth was just the beginning of and the book of Acts then continues the, the story. Now, if we read the entire book of Acts, we can't do that this morning, but if we read the entire book of Acts, when we come to the end of the book of Acts, if you've ever read it before, when you get to that last chapter, you realize that Acts kind of ends very abruptly. It, it doesn't really seem to have much of a conclusion, and I think that's intentional. Because what we see in Luke's record here of the beginning of the church, is that even the book of Acts is just a beginning. It's just the first chapter. And that the story continues to unfold from the first century until now. And on into the future. Until, well, until the end of the story. This is the continuation, and we are in it. The book of Acts, chapter 1. As Jesus wrapped up His time with His disciples, He closed uh, the, the time that He shared with them. He tried to prepare them for the days ahead. And again, we've, we've talked about this, but, but think about the last words that you would share if you knew that you weren't going to see someone again, someone that you had trained, someone that you had worked with, someone that you had... had uh, disciple. I wonder. Well, I don't wonder. When we when we left New Mexico last year, almost exactly a year ago, uh, when we left Las Cruces, I had the opportunity to preach uh, in our church down there that last Sunday that we were there, the day before we left. And Pastor Redland gave me the opportunity to preach, and I kind of considered it as an opportunity to share my last message with that church. What, what I would like to tell them. What I wanted to leave them with. My final words to them. Okay. And I was very, very grateful to be able to do that. But it's important you know, when you stop and think about what would the last thing, what would be the, the final words that I would share. Right? And that's what we see here. Jesus, in essence, sharing these last moments with His disciples and, and giving them uh, some, just the final, His final words to prepare them. He knew that they would face opposition. He knew that they were going to face conflict and persecution. But He also wanted to empower them. And He wanted to prepare them for it. Just prior to His ascension, in Acts 1, Jesus made two very important promises to His followers. And then while He ascended, 
Angelic messengers shared a third promise with these men. These three promises provide us today as followers of Jesus Christ with the guarantee of God's presence within, with His power to witness and His plan to return. I want to consider these three promises this morning uh, with you. Let's begin in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which He was taken up after He through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Or the kingdom to Israel, rather. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. There are three promises in this passage of Scripture that I want to look at this morning. The first promise we see in verses 4 and 5. Here, Jesus, we are told in verse 4, was being assembled together with them. Uh, That word suggests that they ate food together. They were eating. They were fellowshipping together. And while they were together, He commanded them, verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for, what does he call it? The promise of the Father. What is this promise that Jesus gave to His disciples? The first thing here, it's very very simple. What does He say? He says, You have heard from Me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I want you to think about that for just a minute. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? I kind of thought about this and I thought, you know, he's, he says John baptized with water. If he says they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, is he downplaying water baptism? Is he saying, well, you don't, don't worry about that thing? Maybe, maybe we've missed it here. Maybe we've completely missed the boat and we have a baptismal back here, a baptistry. Maybe we, we should get rid of that thing. Maybe we don't need to baptize with water because that was what John did. But Jesus talks about something else. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Maybe we ought to be doing that instead, right? What exactly is this? Well, of course, we can look in the rest of the book of Acts. We can see what event this is referring to. In fact, if we just turn one chapter over to Acts chapter 2, we'll see that on the day of Pentecost, Probably, uh, probably about a week after Jesus said this to them. 
On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, and they received the Holy Spirit. And all throughout the book of Acts, we see that when people came to Christ, when people came to faith and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they received the Holy Spirit. And then we can look in the rest of the New Testament. We can look in a passage like Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, where the Apostle Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Paul describes in the book of Romans the baptism of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians as well. He talks about the baptism of the Spirit, being baptized into one body. What does it mean to be baptized with the Spirit? Well, in the New Testament, baptism of the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit, is equated with the Holy Spirit being in you. That means it doesn't replace water baptism, which is commanded in Matthew 28. It's simply an image. The idea of baptism with the Spirit is a metaphor. It's an image that's used to describe our relationship with God after salvation. The fact that every believer becomes the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. If you accept by faith Jesus Christ as your Savior... The Holy Spirit moves in. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. Jesus promised to the disciples here, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Nobody in the Old Testament could claim that. When we look in the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit seemed to come and go as He pleased. In Samson, we read about Samson. We see that Samson, uh, numerous times we read about the Spirit coming on Samson and empowering him to do some great work. And then the Spirit would leave. In fact, at one point, when the Spirit left Samson, he didn't realize the Spirit was gone anymore. We read about Saul and we, we, we read about the Spirit coming on Saul and the Spirit leaving. There doesn't seem to be in the Old Testament any permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet in the New Testament, this is a totally different thing. This is a totally new thing. And here we have the baptism of the Spirit promised that the Holy Spirit would come. There would be this brand new relationship between God and men. I think there's a couple of ways we need to understand this. This baptism with the Spirit, I think Jesus is trying to give us a picture of what this relationship is like. Notice that he mentions here, John truly baptized with water. Who's he referring to? He's referring to John the Baptist. You can go back to the the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and you can read about John the Baptist and his encounter with Jesus Christ. And John even, John even emphasized that his baptism was just with water, but Jesus' baptism was going to be spirit baptism. John the Baptist, there in John chapter 1, he tried to distinguish himself from Christ. He wanted to make sure that everyone understood that he was not the Christ. When the Pharisees, when the, when the priests and the Levites came to question him, he said, no, I'm not the Christ. I just baptized with water. 
As they asked him, well, how, how, how come you baptize? If you're not the Christ, how come you're baptizing? And he said, you don't understand. I just baptized the water, but there's one who's coming after me who will baptize in the Spirit. And so it was a, it was a way to distinguish himself from Christ, to show how much greater Jesus was than he was. He compared his baptism with water to Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says here, John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, he is one more time, one more time making a claim to be divine. We saw it all through the Gospel. That Jesus over and over and over again demonstrated that he really was God in, in the flesh. And here again, he claims the power to do something supernatural. He says, John baptized you with water. That's what men can do. We can baptize in water. And what does that accomplish? It gets you wet. Jesus says, I can do something greater. I can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Something only God can do. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Who but God could possibly send the Spirit to indwell us? to surround us, to envelop us. That's the other uh, aspect here of baptism, is the picture of baptism. Think about it. The word baptize means to immerse, to submerge. Jesus says that that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just picture that for a minute. Being taken like someone is taken and completely submerged in water and then brought back up when we baptize someone. And Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about with the Holy Spirit. How much is left uncovered? How much is left unaffected? Nothing. The whole person is immersed. And He says, I'm going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is going to be a complete enveloping That's the kind of relationship that he's talking about here. That God's Holy Spirit is going to completely surround you. It's going to completely fill you. It's going to completely cover every part of you. Think about the closeness and the intimacy that 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 suggests. Nothing gets closer to you than water when you jump in. right? Your clothes don't keep it out. It gets right up against your skin. That's that's the picture here he's talking about. The the intimacy, the closeness with which God is going to dwell with men. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Completely surrounded, completely immersed in Him, if you will. But think about it just for a second. That kind of makes sense. If the God of creation, the infinite, all-powerful God, was going to enter into a relationship with us, we would expect nothing less than something that is revolutionary, right? We would expect that if He really is the all-powerful Creator God, that the relationship that we have with Him would be something unique, something that no one else could possibly explain or do or understand. That He would, would dwell with us in such an intimate and personal way that it would be unlike anything anyone else 
could have, unlike any relationship anyone else can have. There's no way that another person can relate to us in this way. But we will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said to the disciples. Completely filled, surrounded, brought into this intimate and close relationship. But not only, I think, do we see baptism here as that picture of that intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, but I think we also need to understand baptism as a means of identification. When we baptize someone in water, we look at the New Testament teaching on the subject, it's a means of identification. It's a means by which an individual identifies themselves with Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about in Romans 6, being baptized with Him in, in death and raised with Him in newness of life. That's what Jesus, or that's what Paul talks about, is this identification. When we are baptized in water as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are identifying ourselves with Him and we are identifying ourselves with one another. That's why it's a local church ordinance. Because when you get baptized here, you are identifying yourself with each and every one of us who is a part of this church. But then let's put that in the context here of what Jesus is talking about. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a reversal. In a way, it's kind of like God choosing to identify Himself with the followers of Jesus Christ. God saying, I'm going to identify myself with you. You're going to identify yourself with me, but I'm pouring out my Spirit on you. Identifying myself with you. Putting my name on you. I think that contrast is very profound. When we're baptized with water, we choose to identify ourselves with Jesus. But when His followers are baptized by the Spirit, God is choosing to identify with them. I think the wording here is so important. Jesus says you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. He is talking about a close and intimate relationship, far uh, different from any other kind of relationship we can experience. And He's talking about an identification where God willingly chooses to identify Himself with those who've trusted Christ. This is revolutionary. This changes everything. This simple statement by Christ changes everything. Because what are the results of being baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, I've already mentioned one. Just to think about this. And I, and I really, I mean, we could just give, you, I just give you this and say, do this this week and this would be enough. Consider that God Himself has come down to live inside man, His creation. Meditate on that a little bit. That God has come down and chosen to live within us. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. God chooses to be in you. That, I just can't get my head around that. 
I just can't quite get over that. That's something that just is, is spectacular to me. I just don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to understand it. And it certainly should never get old to me. But I think sometimes, I think sometimes we get so, so used to we get so used to what the Word of God says. We get so used to hearing biblical teaching and preaching that, that to, for somebody to say, oh, the Holy Spirit involves you, okay, no big deal. No big deal. This is God Himself, the Creator, coming down and living inside His creation. Empowering it. Enabling it. Having a wonderful fellowship with His creation. Well, that's something special. That's something unique. That's something that only Christ can offer us here. Now, as we make our way through the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see firsthand uh, what the implications are of the Holy Spirit, what actually happens when people receive the Holy Spirit. We'll see it, okay? But I'll just mention to you two, really the two main areas here. All right, are essentially this. The Holy Spirit uh, would equip them for service. And that the Holy Spirit would unite them into one body, the church. Okay. As we go through the book of Acts, you just, you just look for those two things. We're going to see that as the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's followers, on, on the followers of Jesus Christ, that they are going to receive the power and the ability to do the work that He's called them to do. And they are also going to be brought into one body, one fellowship, the church. And we're going to see that process take place as we study through the book of Acts. Now let's move on to the next promise. Not only does He promise for them to receive the Spirit, but verses 6-8. through eight, Their response to Him when he, when he starts talking about this is, they said, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, the disciples have, have really struggled to understand what Jesus' real purpose and ministry is. They really have struggled with this. I, I mean, they, they, they've been with Him, but boy, they really are having a hard time understanding and so they're asking him again, well, well, okay, now, we kind of thought it was over after you died. We were a little worried about that. But now you're risen from the dead. Now everything seems to be back on track. Now is the kingdom coming. And Jesus says in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put on His own authority. But, but, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me. This is the second promise. The first promise is, the, is the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The second is the promise of the power to witness. He says, power will come upon you and you will be witnesses. You know, do you notice here, he doesn't ask them. He doesn't say, hey, um, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and uh, here's what I'd like you to do if you agree to it. I'd like you to be... Would you be my witnesses? Would you mind telling the people about me? Would you mind sharing this good news? He doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't make it a request. He says... Oh, and he says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, some people have suggested that when he says the end of the earth there in verse 8, he's referring to Rome. But sorry, Rome wasn't the end of the earth. Okay. Rome was kind of the middle of everything then. 
No, no, the end of the earth, he's referring to the, you know, the end of the earth. Listen, you're going to take this message as my witnesses, and you are going to go as far as you can go. You're going to go, you know, you start going this way, you start going this way, and then you meet up on the other side. Okay. You're going to go to the end of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. This is the promise. This is the power that the Holy Spirit provides. Look at what, just consider the disciples themselves. What do we know about them? We've already seen that they scattered in fear when Jesus was arrested. They hid. They refused to believe the eyewitnesses to his resurrection out of fear. But when we see them in the book of Acts, we seem to see entirely different men. Preaching boldly, enduring physical abuse and imprisonment, and ultimately death for the sake of the gospel. The power that they had received was the power to testify to the truth in the face of hostile and violent opposition. Theirs was supernatural courage and the strength to live for Christ in a world that mocked their beliefs, their obedience, and their Savior. One commentator on this passage said this about this power that they would receive. He says, The receiving power from on high has chiefly to do with witnessing. For example, the reception of the Spirit by the Samaritans, that's Acts chapter 8, or Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, did not make them apostles, but it did make them witnesses. And this book is about witnesses, whether apostles or not. You see, I I said that we're here. We find ourselves in this book as well because this book is about witnesses, whether apostles or not. We're not, by the way. Apostles, but we are witnesses. What Jesus says, you will be witnesses. You know, witness usually can't help uh, but be a witness, right? I mean, someone who witnesses a crime, they didn't go there to planning to witness the crime, right? (laughs) You know, they didn't show up at the bank that day thinking, well, I'm just in time for the robbery, I can be the witness. They didn't do that. What they saw was not in their control. The issue was what they said about it afterwards. That's what we see. Witnesses. That's what we are. We are witnesses, he says. That's what he tells the, the apostles. But listen, that's what he's telling us today. That you and I are witnesses. If we know Jesus Christ, we are His witnesses. Not, he's not asking here. Remember, he's, he's telling. We are His witnesses. Now, what role does that play in discipleship? Well, we've already noticed this. In fact, last week we looked at this in Mark 16, verses 14 and 15, that true faith always results in action. And what was it that Jesus told His followers to do at the end of the Gospel? He didn't say, go get baptized. He said, go and preach the gospel. Be witnesses. Evangelism is not the role of the gifted. It's not the role of those whose whose vocation is witnessing. It is the duty of all believers. In fact, it is completely natural to want to share Christ with those who need Him. 
especially when we understand what we've been saved from. We trace the book of Acts all the way to the end, and at the end of the book we find Paul freely preaching the gospel in Rome. Rather than the ends of the earth, at that time, the gospel had only reached an empire. And by implication, the unfinished work of being witnesses has then been passed on. Passed on from this early church to become the calling of the church ever since. But you need to remember that it's Jesus' promise that His followers would be witnesses. This is the work that He would bring about in our life as a result of the Gospel. The third promise we find there in verse 9 through verse 11. When Jesus was ascended, when, while He was ascending, the angels who stood there said in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. What was the angel's advice to the disciples? Stop staring at the sky and get to work. Stop looking up at the sky and get to work. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had disappeared, by the way, in front of his disciples. In fact, if we we look in the gospel accounts, we had the account of the two men on the road to Emmaus. And they were with Jesus. And they were walking with Him and talking with Him. And they invited Him over for dinner. And He comes and they sit down. And He prays and blesses the food. And as soon as He's done praying, it says that He disappears from their sight. But see, before when He disappeared, He reappeared later. That's kind of the sense we get here that Jesus was ascended. He was taken up into heaven. And the disciples are watching. Alright, He disappeared. Now where's He going to appear next? And the angel said, no, no, no. You missed it now. Okay. Quit staring up in heaven. Quit watching for Him. Get to work. He's already told you what you need to know. He's already given you everything you need. He's given them the task of being witnesses. And the fact of His departure, again, it seems like an end as Jesus departs, as He leaves. But it's only the beginning. Because it's only after Jesus left that the Holy Spirit could come. That's what he says to us in the Gospel of John. He says, if I don't go, the Spirit can't come. I have to go. I have to leave you. So that the Holy Spirit can be poured out on you. I think of it this way. It's only after students have graduated from their teacher's presence that they can put into practice all that they've been taught. Now Jesus is gone. But the promise is, hey, he's coming back just like he left to get to work. He's coming back. Now that's encouraging because we know he's coming back. But it also is a little bit challenging, isn't it? Because guess what? He's coming back. John Polhill in his commentary on Acts says this, Moments of high spiritual experience are never ends in themselves. You ever been on a spiritual mountaintop experience? Where you just felt like God was working and everything was great? That's not an end in and of itself. That's where the disciples are here, but it was time for them to come down from the mountain and witness to what they had seen. Now it's time for them to get to work. Okay. Now the hard work begins. Jesus is gone. He's promised to return, but that means you've got a deadline. That means you've got to get to work. 
these three promises, the promise of the Spirit, the promise to be witnesses, and the promise of His return, are really only focused on one thing. They're really focused right there in the center on verse 8. They're focused on being witnesses to Christ. But we are not the only witnesses. You know that? Did you know that the stars sing? In Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Louis Giglio, in his book, Indescribable, says that stellar objects known as pulsars have been found to produce rhythmic musical tones. I don't know if you were aware of that. All the uh, tax dollars we've been spending searching for extraterrestrial life in the universe, that's what we've discovered. That stars, called pulsars, generate sound. Beautiful pulsating sounds. And in some places in our galaxy, when they look with these radio telescopes, they're able to to identify in one particular cloud of stars, they're able to identify 17 pulsars that are all emitting a a unique pitch and rhythm. And we can hear it. I don't think that's what Psalm 19 is meaning, but I think it's kind of interesting. The heavens do declare the glory of God. Giglio goes on to say, The psalm writer leaves no stone unturned in describing a great symphony of epic proportions, one composed of colossal pulsars and mammoth whales, crashing waves and laughing children, tiny birds who flap and flutter and thunders rattling, quaking roll, kings and commoners and everything that comes from the hand of God. And somewhere in the midst of it all is you, special among all of creation, made in the very image of God, stamped with divinity and created in the likeness of God. You too were made by and for Jesus. Thus, you have a voice in the chorus. A voice like no other. Because unlike the stars, you have the capacity to know and love the Creator and the choice to value Him above everything else He has made. Psalm 19 describes the heavens declaring the glory of God. Psalm 148 says that we ought to praise Him as His creation. But God did not create us just to reflect His glory. Here in Acts 1, we see that He has promised that as His followers, we will be His witnesses. He has poured out His Spirit on us and He has planned to return for us. He did not ask us to become His witnesses. He simply declared that we would be. And so there really is no choice in the matter. Either we serve as witnesses to Christ or we are not fulfilling His purpose for our lives. Now maybe you would say, well, there's some objections to that. I, I'm not sure that I, that I really agree with that. I had heard uh, one, uh, in fact, one of my former pastors was listening to a message that he preached this week. And he mentioned a nephew of his that was preaching in a church up in, uh, up in uh, uh, De- uh, Delaware, I think. 
And he said that this, his nephew made the statement during the message that if you're not actively involved in the discipleship of another person, you are not in God's will. And he told his, his uh, nephew, he said, if you keep preaching like that, the church you're preaching at may not call you to be the pastor. That's hard to hear. If you're not involved in this process of being a witness, if you're not involved in the discipleship process, then you're not in God's will. It seems kind of hard. I mean, don't we get a choice? Don't we get a choice in the matter? Well, the answer to that question is no. In fact, it's, it's kind of like, to be honest, this analogy I thought was pretty appropriate. It's kind of like those National Guard members. I don't know if you remember this back uh, oh, a, number, a few years ago. A number of National Guard members tried to object to their orders to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan under President Bush. They, uh, in numerous cases, several cases, tried to get out of having to be deployed overseas. And they objected, and they would go on the news, and they would say, you know, it's not, it's not fair because I didn't sign up to go to war. I only signed up for a free college education. That's why I joined the Guard. Well, okay. But can I suggest to you that Christ never offers us a get-out-of-hell-free card with no strings attached. That's not what the Gospel is about. Jesus Christ offers us an opportunity to become His followers. That's what it's about. To follow Him, obediently doing His will. That means we'll be witnesses to Him. Probably the most common objection to being a witness is simply that we're afraid. We're afraid. This fear can manifest itself in a number of ways. Maybe it's fear of rejection. Maybe it's fear of what others will think. Fear of losing friends. Or maybe it's just the fear that, you know, you say, I don't know enough. I wouldn't be able to answer someone else's questions. Sorry, none of those fears hold any water either. Those objections don't work. Why not? Well, it's really simple. Right here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus already, already resolved this issue. He didn't just declare us His witnesses in verse 8. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do what He has called us to be. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you have been given everything you need to be His witness. You have. You've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, completely and totally immersed in His power. And you've been given a mandate to bear witness to Jesus before a lost world. Finally, we need to understand that our role as witnesses is not limited to certain people in certain places. Our mission is a perpetual calling to preach the gospel to the very ends of the earth. It won't be completed until Christ returns. That wasn't completed in the book of Acts. It's not complete today. It won't be completed until Jesus Christ returns for us. As we consider this passage, though, I want you to think back with me 
we won't have time to turn there, but Mark 13. The last part of Mark 13, we talked about this several weeks ago. Mark 13, Jesus shared a parable with his disciples, a parable of a householder who left and went on a journey and left his servants behind with assignments. And Jesus said to them, Watch, because you do not know what hour the Master will return. And when we were in that passage, I told you that, that the word watch there did not suggest you know, getting your telescope out and searching the heavens to look for you know, the, you know, the glory of, of, of God coming. You know, we'll see a, something that shines brighter than the stars. We'll know that He's coming. We can hurry up and get things taken care of. That's not what the word watch means. It didn't mean to go up on a mountaintop and sit there uh, you know, staring up at the sky. What, what the word watch in Mark 13 meant was get to work. You've got a job to do. Christ is coming back. You've been given a task to be His witness. Get busy. Be prepared for His return by being active in doing what He has called you to do today. That's what Jesus meant by watch in Mark 13. He, he meant what he tells the disciples right here in verse 8. You will receive power and you shall be witnesses to me. So how are you doing this morning? Have you become a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? If not, then really the issue of being a witness doesn't apply to you. These words were given to Jesus' disciples. Well, can I encourage you this morning, the first step is to become a disciple. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and become a follower of Christ, then that's what you need to do this morning. Now, for the rest of you who are Jesus' followers, do you realize just how significant it is the truth that you've received the Holy Spirit? Christ has chosen you to be His witness. And He has given you everything you need to fulfill that role. The only question that's left, what kind of witness will you be?